welcome to a special Tuesday edition of the Week in Russia, RFRL's weekly podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and for those of you who may have just joined us now, uh, my guest this week is Nigel Gould Davies. Nigel is the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, he was the British Ambassador to Belarus from 2007 to 2009, and has also been the head of the economic section at the British Embassy in Moscow, so a uh, wealth of experience uh, in this region. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining me today, Nigel. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. It's great to have you. Uh, now, I normally ask the guests two questions on this podcast. But the first one today, I want to focus on an article of yours, uh, Nigel, that was published in the journal Foreign Affairs just a few days ago. The headline is The Astonishing Endurance of Unity on Ukraine. Now, it's been over a year since Russia's large-scale invasion, uh, and you wrote that, quote, the West's commitment to Ukraine is undiminished and measured by aid delivered stronger than ever. You continued, this unity is unprecedented and underappreciated, and it far surpasses the strongest periods of transatlantic cohesion during the Cold War. And you wrote that despite this perhaps unexpected unity, although those are my words, I think, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin still believes the West will weaken before Russia does. This is his potential path to victory, um, perhaps his only one, uh, following the setbacks that Russia has suffered on the battlefield so far. But what I want to focus on um, is not the unity up to now, but the future. In the article, you set out four ways for the West to maintain this level of unity, four things Western countries can do to, to try to sustain it. Can I just ask you to give us a rundown, kind of explain uh, these four recommendations and, and explain um, why you believe they are, they are crucial? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Steve. So uh, in order to do that, I will just need to sort of glance back at the argument uh, about oh, unity um, just 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 uh, because the the four uh, things that we must do follow from that argument so uh, I mean really I I wanted to to write the argument to uh, uh, to explain what I thought was this underappreciated fact that uh, Western unity uh, has up to now we mustn't be complacent of course um, and uh, I'll say more about that a little later. But unity up to this point has been stronger and more emphatic than Western unity uh, in regard to the Soviet Union was during the Cold War, and even during the darkest and tensest moments of the Cold War. And just to illustrate that with one example, so I think most people would say the Soviet Union appeared at its most dangerous in the, so the late 1970s, early 1980s. It uh, it was at least uh, had at least achieved strategic equality, possibly uh, superiority in some respects uh, with uh, the United States. It had a very very large conventional military superiority uh, in Europe. It was uh, installing a new generation of intermediate range uh, nuclear weapons in in Eastern Europe to hit Western targets very quickly. It was very very 
menacing. It was a genuine superpower. So you'd think that was a moment that will weld the West together. And yet we find even in those sort of semi-crisis uh, times, very significant Western divisions. Uh, the United States had uh, sought to respond at European request, it has to be said, um, to uh, the new generation of Soviet nuclear weapons by deploying uh, Pershing II and, and, and cruise missiles. They're opposed by uh, large sections of, of Western European populations. There were huge demonstrations against them, fierce criticisms of official policy in several uh, countries. Also, at an official level, there were very significant divisions over energy policy. The United States wanted to stop the Soviet Union building a gas pipeline to Western Europe. Uh, Western Europeans were very, very unhappy with that. Even Margaret Thatcher, who was Ronald Reagan's closest ally. So again, even these darker days, you have splits and divisions and some real bitterness in some cases. None of that today, none of that since the invasion has began. Yes, there's been wobbles and, and, and uh, as I put it in the article, spats, but not splits uh, across the uh, across the transatlantic uh, alliance. Uh, and not only has the West remained unified, it has rapidly escalated the forms of support it's providing to Ukraine and also the extent of the sanctions uh, that it is imposing on Russia that's reached quite unprecedented levels, including invention of completely uh, new sanctions instruments like the oil price cap. So seen in historical perspective, we should be impressed by um, the extent of resolve and the degree of its practical expression uh, uh, in, in support for Ukraine, uh, where in a series of uh, issues, the unthinkable has quickly become the doable. The tank debate is just the latest uh, example of that. So, again, we mustn't be complacent, but I think there is a we should take a degree of pride and satisfaction in that unity. It's certainly not something that could have been assumed from the start. It's certainly not something that Putin expected or intended. Uh, and uh, he is still counting, part of his theory of victory, still counting on the West's unity and resolve breaking up sooner or later. So from the past to the future, what are the things that the West must do to sustain this unity? And the first is to uh, constantly maintain uh, the correct understanding that uh, any outcome to this war that leaves Russia better off than it was before this latest invasion began, uh, would not fundamentally resolve the conflict. Uh, it would not only be uh, immoral to, in effect, reward Russian aggression, it would be horrifically immoral as well with respect to the Ukrainian population that would become permanently captive to Russia. Because when you cut lines across maps, it's not just territory, it's peoples that you are dividing. But there is a deep rational self-interest, strategic self-interest uh, for the West in ensuring that this uh, aggression is not rewarded. It would set a terrible precedent uh, for others in the world. So they're watching very closely uh, the story of Western resolve here and looking for signs of weakness and compromise that could be exploited in other times and places. But in addition to that, there's no evidence at all that uh, an end to the fighting that left Russia better off uh, would 
be in any sense a long-term resolution. It would be much more likely a pause uh, and a prelude to a further invasion by Russia, a further act of aggression uh, against a now weakened Ukraine. It would lead, in effect, to a third invasion after the first of 2014 and the second of 2022. So there is, for all those reasons, there's a as a strategic self-interest, uh, a, a security case for maintaining uh, resolve. In addition to that, there is the moral case as well. And uh, we've all been horrified by the revelations of ongoing war crimes, not uh, sort of episodic and individual, but systematic in scale. Wherever Russian forces have occupied Ukrainian territory, they have carried out uh, war crimes. It is part of their system, if you like. So we have a situation here where strategic self-interest and moral uh, obligation and compulsion are pulling in the same direction, reinforcing one another to a degree that we really haven't, we haven't seen uh, in the recent past. So, uh, and that means continuing to bear witness, uh, document these crimes and set into motion the international legal processes, which would uh, which lead to eventually to uh, holding uh, individuals to account. And there's already uh, processes that are, are, are set to begin in The Hague, uh, the International Criminal Court. That's welcome uh, and important. The third thing, uh, uh, and the fourth thing, actually, together, that the West must do to sustain unity, not only... Uh, remind ourselves, keep constantly in the front of our minds that the strategic and moral cases are strong, but also ensure that on the home front, uh, resolve does not weaken. So that means, thirdly, uh, uh, making sure that the uh, malign economic consequences for the world, and including for our own populations, that they uh, do not lead to uh, any erosion of uh, resolve. We've had higher commodity prices, of course. That's in particular hurt our poorest uh, citizens. Commodity price inflation means that low incomes uh, are stretched even more tightly. We don't want that to happen. Uh, we don't want that to cause a critical mass of the population in any country to begin to reevaluate our support uh, for Ukraine. So this is sort of a domestic policy issue, but it means uh, there are different ways to do it, and different countries are exploring this. Targeted subsidies, uh, uh, various forms of domestic welfare support to the poorest citizens. I would argue it's right to do that anyway, but there is now a, a strategic case uh, for doing so. So making sure that Putin's manipulation of uh, the grain price uh, crisis, for example, doesn't, uh, doesn't cause us to re rethink uh, these things. And West uh, Russian propagandists on television have been very explicit uh, in hoping that uh, the, the lack of access to Russian energy and higher food prices will indeed lead to a collapse of Western support. This has been very explicitly articulated as part of their plan. So there's a domestic inward focused dimension of our overall strategy here. And the fourth and final thing to do is to make sure that the uh, uh, the way that our populations think about and frame this war uh, remains solid and strong. 
Russia is a subtle and skilled practitioner of disinformation. Uh, we've seen it sow its malign seeds in the Western information space, including at times of elections in the past. I think we can take heart uh, up to this point since the war began that uh, that, uh, that capacity has been harmed, that Russia, at least in the West, uh, is losing the information war. But again, there's no room for complacency here. We must continue not to take that for granted, but to sustain the right narratives and indeed extend them to other parts of the world where uh, the Russian voice and Russian deception, frankly, uh, seems to carry further. And I'll just uh, I'll stop on this point, uh, Steve, but just the, the final, final uh, uh, bit of news that's just in, which caught my eye and caught yours as well. So uh, I think it was yesterday uh, Fox News interviewed or sent questions to a number of potential uh, Republican candidates for the presidency and asked about uh, their attitudes towards uh, the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. And uh, uh, I was, and others were certainly troubled by some of the answers there that were given that suggested that uh, if uh, at least some of these people became president, we might see a different attitude in the United States. And this is um, uh, after 2024. And this is alarming prospect. The West has passed a series of electoral tests so far since the war began. Elections in Italy and Sweden changed governments, but they did not change Ukraine policy. In France, President Macron was re-elected against the challenge of uh, Marine Le Pen, whose party is known to have ties with the Kremlin. Uh, but the biggest worry looming uh, is the challenge in Washington next year. I was uh, at a meeting with uh, with uh, Boris Johnson just yesterday, and uh, he made this very clear as well actually. And he said it's very, very important that the, the political class, that the bipartisan support for Ukraine and uh, in resisting Russia remains strong through the next election. All right. Thanks very much for that, Nigel. Um, this is a little unfair. I was going to, I, I'm going to ask two questions, but I'm actually going to ask a second question that's following up on on what you've just said, including um, the, the portion that you, that you just articulated about the U.S. elections uh, coming up and how that may be the biggest challenge. Um, the question is about your, your point three, the idea that the United States and its allies must develop, I think you put it in the, in the article, must develop domestic policies to sustain their commitment to Ukraine. And so my question is kind of twofold. Are there precedents for this um, in the past? And also, whether you think it's realistic, given the deep divisions in some Western countries. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you know, maybe this is not uh, answerable right now, but, uh, but, the, but the elections seem to be presenting a challenge, you know, with some politicians certainly saying that Ukraine, defending Ukraine is not a priority. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I don't yet see deep uh, divisions, at least political divisions, on, on these issues in, in Western countries. And in, in some ways, that's a, a welcome surprise, as it were, because so many uh, political issues in recent times have been sort of contaminated by a, a, a polarization, uh, this, uh, um, and 
extreme vilification of the, the adversary uh, camp. Uh, we've seen this on a whole range of questions related to the pandemic, for example, and vaccines and all of these things. Strange myths arising, uh, sort of toxic polarization setting in. We saw all plenty of this sort of thing around the, the 2020 election in the United States as well. Um, but there seems to be a sense in which uh, moral clarity has returned to public politics across um, pretty much all of Western societies. And it's this unanimity, again, which, uh, which I want to return to because it, it is a, a striking counterpoint to, to, again, even the tensest moments of the, of the Cold War. So it's all, all Western states, except Hungary, you have to say that, all Western societies and in large majorities still supporting Ukraine and um, large parts of the private sector. And that is genuinely new as well. And, and uh, I think a surprise that's uh, parts of the private sector and big companies as well, uh, you know, with decades of experience in Russian, billions of dollars of uh, investment commitments uh, have not only complied with state sanctions because they have to, because it's the law, they've also voluntarily reinforced them by in many cases, withdrawing from Russia. There are different views, uh, depending on what study you look at, uh, of what proportion of Western businesses have done that. Um, but it seems to be substantial. And certainly, again, some of the biggest names uh, that one couldn't have assumed would do this have, have withdrawn. So I don't think you see deep divisions. Uh, in terms of the domestic policies to sustain support, yeah, I think we saw some of this during the... Uh, during the uh, the Cold War, when generally levels of I'm not going to get too, too tangled up with sort of domestic policies, although I leave that to the experts on on that front. Though, you know, make the larger point, it is all connected in a, a sort of a grand strategy that must attend properly to the connections between foreign and domestic policy. But just make this point: during the Cold War, uh, when the Soviet the, the Soviet threat was greater. The threat of his ideas was a little different. They claimed to have a better economic model. Of course, they didn't, but that was their claim. That was part of their attraction. Western governments did offer a degree of welfare support and protection, in part because they didn't want uh, the false claims and false attraction of uh, an alternative economic model to gain influence within Western societies. So you had sort of levels of welfare provision and support, which in many cases sort of hollowed out or stripped away or reduced in the post-Cold War uh, period, in the, in, in the period of, of, as it were, more naked economic liberalism. The challenge for Russia now is of a different uh, order. That no one thinks Russia isn't even pretending that it has a better economic model. That's not obviously not the challenge at all. The challenge economically is a different one, that Russian manipulation of uh, access to commodities and therefore commodity prices might put pressure uh, on uh, Western uh, populations, particularly poorer citizens, and cause them to become disillusioned by Western support for the war. They might begin to demand a different uh, sort of policy calculus and say, well, look, you know, uh, we care about our own uh, 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 nutrition, our own welfare, more than we care about Ukraine. That's not happening yet, uh, but we want to make sure it doesn't happen. 
Uh, but maybe the solution isn't so different from what Western governments did during the Cold War. You need targeted assistance. You need proper welfare policies. You need to make sure that people are kept out of poverty um, as a consequence of this war. So I draw, draw a broad analogy there if you're asking for uh, precedence for welfare policy today um, in the in the past, in the, the previous era of our confrontation with, uh, with Russia. All right, thanks very much. That's, that, that's very fascinating and uh, it takes me back to the 70s. Um, but, but as you say, the challenge uh, quite different uh, and in some ways, some ways more severe now. Um, now, my other question that I wanted to ask is related to uh, your first recommendation of what the West must do uh, to, to sustain um, support, unity and support for Ukraine. The idea that, um, as you wrote, uh, any end to the war that leaves Russia in a position to renew its campaign against Ukraine poses a long-term threat to vital Western interests, unquote. And when you were on this program last May, uh, we talked about a New York Times uh, guest essay in which you had argued that it was crucial for the West to uh, quote, guarantee that Russia is worse off than it was before the invasion. And you touched on this again today. Um, you know, at a minimum, you said uh, Western policy should ensure that Russia gains no new Ukrainian territory and continues to face severe sanctions until it fundamentally changes its policy toward Ukraine. Mm. Um, and you also warned that uh, to wait for a grueling stalemate to define the contours of a peace settlement is to favor Russia, unquote. Now, my question today is, is that still possible um, to, to kind of to, to, to make sure that Russia doesn't uh, end up uh, in a better position uh, than it was at the start um, of the invasion? Um, uh, it certainly seemed possible at, at, at times, maybe many times last year, following successful Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, in the east and south and, and, and also um, in the north uh, in, the, in the initial weeks uh, when, when Ukraine beat back Russia's um, advances toward Kiev, advance on Kiev. Uh, and so at these times, Kiev certainly seemed to, to have the momentum, but neither side has made major gains more recently despite very intense fighting around the Donbass city of Bakhmut and elsewhere, uh, mostly in the Donbass. But has the war reached a, a stalemate? Mm, mm, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, a couple of points there. Firstly, I think no one really expected uh, that there would be a major breakthrough uh, in recent months. This has been the winter uh, after all. Uh, and Ukraine had, as, as you recall, made major gains and very significant and unpredicted breakthroughs around Kharkiv and Kherson in the autumn. Uh, and Russia had been pushed back into what at the time were more sustainable positions. So no one, no one expected at that time, I think, that that momentum would continue in the short term. But uh, I mean, going back to that point that no one also had expected those, or well, very few people, those major breakthroughs in the autumn, that drives home the larger lesson that this war has been intrinsically unpredictable. Uh, there was much discussion of stalemates last summer, uh, and one began to hear these arguments, yes, it's going to be slow and 
attritional and grinding and World War I-like. And so it was until it suddenly wasn't. So I would say uh, we cannot be confident uh, that we can predict the course of this war, even in uh, the coming few months, let alone the next year. Although I would say we're looking at, the, as it were, the tail risks on either side. I don't see any great risk at this point that Ukraine will become significantly worse off. I'd suggest that most of the, the risks lie on the Russian side. And this brings me to sort of a second point, but a larger point uh, to return to the, the fundamental issue of Western resolve and make the comparison again with the Cold War. So uh, in long wars, when both sides are all in, so it's really you know, of, of fundamental importance to them and not peripheral or limited importance, if they're really all in, it's a long war, the lesson of history is that the economically stronger side always wins. And that makes perfectly good sense, of course, because if your economy is larger, especially if it's significantly larger, then you just have a larger resource base on which to draw in uh, providing uh, the weapons uh, needed to fight that war. The sinews of uh, military power are just thicker and stronger. That's the lesson of long wars. So let's compare the situation now. What does it look like? Basically compared with the past. During the Cold War, which you can think of as a decades-long uh, contest of economic systems as much as anything, the collective West, which is the North American Western Europe, uh, was about two to two and a half times wealthier than the Soviet Union Eastern Europe. And yes, you can sort of argue a bit about the figures and you know, how exactly you measure Soviet-type economies and non-market systems and so on, but roughly speaking, two, two and a half times bigger. What, what happens if you do the calculation today? You compare North America with pretty much all of Europe now, so you know, Britain um, and, uh, Western, uh, and the EU, uh, and now on the other side of the ledger, it's just Russia. Uh, do the math there. And the West is over 12 times as uh, wealthy. And uh, for many, that will be a significant understatement, actually. And that, that's 12 times. That's if you make the calculation according to purchasing power parity. Because, of course, are different ways of comparing uh, national income. So that's the way that's most generous to Russia. So at least, West is at least 12 times richer, probably more so. Again, when I made this point to Boris Johnson yesterday, his eyes popped and he said he's only 12 times. Um, but yes, at least 12 times. So the point there is if the West retains its resolve and is willing to uh, turn a larger proportion of its economic superiority into militarily usable form to Ukraine, and no one is asking the West to fight directly, to provide the tools to Ukraine with the West's much bigger economy and also qualitatively much more sophisticated technologies, this, you know, there's no doubt who will prevail in this. That's the point. Um, so I see in this imbalance of economic capacity, uh, both a message of hope and also a reason to sustain our, our commitment. All right, thanks very much. That, that's really um, extremely 
useful, at least for me, uh, kind of explanation. Um, and I would say, I mean, he, he suggested that Boris Johnson's eyes popped because he thought 12 times was was less than he would have expected. But to me, it seems like my eyes were popping a bit um, because, you know, it, it's it's a you know, it's a it's a large amount. So so your arguments there are you know, very interesting. Um, uh, we're getting uh, short on time. We don't have a lot of time left, but uh, we do have time for a few questions, I think, or a couple of questions, if there are any. So um, I'd invite people to to ask, use one of the methods to to ask questions if you if you have one. If we're, Steve, if we're waiting for someone to ask a question, I, could I just make one point quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see any questions yet. Please go ahead. Okay, yeah, just, just touching on a, a, an observation you made earlier about the, the consequences of the, if, if, if Russia were to end the war better off, especially significantly better off than it was before this invasion began. It's important to understand why this would be a disastrous outcome for the West and why it would be worse now, significantly worse for the West uh, if Ukraine lost than it would have been if Ukraine had been defeated immediately in the first days or weeks of the invasion, as, as Putin expected. It would be worse now because if Ukraine had been quickly defeated and occupied, that would have been a, a humiliation and a setback uh, for the West. The West would become significantly strategically worse off. Um, it would have presented this sense of Putin again being master of the game and be able to make these rapid moves and catch other people off balance. That would have been bad. But if something similar were to happen now, um, then Putin will have achieved a victory um, after the West has repeatedly committed itself um, in rhetoric and in policy to preventing that happening. So it would be uh, a matter not only of the West becoming strategically worse off, it would be a matter of the West's credibility around the world uh, being shattered, frankly, because others, uh, you can think of China, for example, uh, would see this and say, once again, the West loses its nerve. All you have to do is be tough enough for long enough. And uh, whatever the West says, and even what it does, it ultimately has no stomach for a fight. And I think that if that is the outcome and that is the conclusion that others draw, uh, then that would be absolutely disastrous uh, for the West, would have global consequences for the indefinite future. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Um just to not not that it's not clear at all, but uh, just to elaborate on on on, what, on your point there, you know, I think at at the beginning, you know, th there was a lot of expectation that Ukraine would would frankly, you know, lose uh, quickly. So, you know, as you say, I think that would be something that would be quite uh, horrifying and and embarrassing and bad. Uh, would have been, um, you know, for the West, obviously for Ukraine, um, kind of the idea, well, Putin made all these demands of the, of the West and Ukraine, NATO and the U.S. 
uh, and then went and then he went in and, and tried to to get them by force uh, to fulfill them by force. And had that succeeded, obviously would have been a huge blow. But now, when you have, uh, you know, as you say, what, what what the West is saying and doing, uh, mm -hmm. officials saying Russia can't win. That this is not something that can be allowed to happen. And mm -hmm. also of all the aid and weapons. So, you know, I, I can see your point that um, that that um, an outcome in which Russia ended up better off uh, would be would be even even worse and significantly worse, um, perhaps, uh, than uh, than it would have been beginning, at least for the West and, and areas beyond beyond Ukraine. Um, so it's also, uh, a, you know, a good argument, I think, for. For as you say, kind of the sustained sustained unity, uh, and, and coupled with the the point about the um, uh, you know economic superiority of the West, it's almost it almost sounds like a no brainer, which uh, which is uh, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Now I'll uh, just uh, just wait a few moments, see if see if anyone has has uh, emerged with a question. Okay, sometimes we have several. Um, today it looks like I don't see any questions. I'll, I'll make one more point then. Um, Absolutely. Coming back to the, the threats to Western resolve. Again, elections are always moments when things can change. And mentioned earlier, a series of European election challenges, tests have been passed so far. And we are all worried about, about what will happen in November 2024 in America. And that's really a, a striking change because... Again, during the Cold War, the, war the, the, the general worry was that if transatlantic unity split fatally, it would be a consequence of something happening in Europe and not something happening in America. It might be an election in West Germany, for example, uh, or it might be an election in Italy or you know, possibly in Britain when the, the Labour Party adopted an anti-nuclear policy in the early 1980s. The question of American resolve uh, and commitment to uh, both supporting uh, Western Europe and also opposing the sort of tyranny in Eastern Europe, that was never in question. And now the positions are reversed. What we worry about most is a continuing resolve in, in the United States. And that's a kind of historical reversal, it seems to me, and, and, and one that, you know, one that is worrying, of course, um, but one that um, uh, deserves more attention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that kind of reversal had its roots a few years ago. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very, um, seems like a big challenge uh, ahead. Uh, I'm just going to, thanks very much for setting everything out so clearly, Nigel. I'm just going to give like one, uh, a, a few moments in, in case a question pops up. Uh, but we are getting short on time. So um, if not, I will uh, wrap it up here. Um, again, Nigel, uh, thanks. Uh, very, very, very clear. Lots of food for thought um, and you know, some kind of heartening points, I would say, but also, you know, a good explanation of of the challenges um, that are that are faced. Uh, so thanks for joining me, and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thank you very much.
All right, great to have you. Now, once again, I've been speaking to Nigel Gould-Davies, the Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, former uh, British ambassador to Belarus, um, and a high-level diplomat in, uh, posted in Moscow. Uh, my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts um, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which is published on Friday. Thanks for listening.